0: Welcome to Becoming Parents Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Taylor Campbell. I'm a birth and bereavement doula, as well as an adoption and surrogacy doula. Doula means woman who serves. And although I love happy births, adoptions, and surrogacy, the pro bono part of my business is in bereavement. I'm here to help you. I'm also mom of 18, yes, 18 children with over 30 years experience in the trenches as a mom myself. We have a huge blended family, and I've also experienced the loss of our adult son. Remember, give a shout out to those brave enough to share their stories on how they have become parents. Let's dive in. Welcome to Becoming Parents podcast. This is a really fun, interesting conversation that we're going to have with Tracy Keene today. I'm very excited about it. Tracy, how are you doing? Wow. How are you, Jen? I'm fantastic. I just, this is my favorite. So this is great. Um, I want to start by, because we have the title here, the Mates Infertility's Inclusion First Approach with LGBTQ and Single Parent Infertility is the title of this podcast. So because of that, usually it's like, oh, if you're an entrepreneur, what do you do at the end? But I actually would just want to jump in right there. You're the CEO of Mate Fertility. And I thought it was going to be Australian (laughs) because of the word mate. But you have several locations here. So give us just tell me a little bit about being the CEO there, and then I want to jump right into your story.
1: Yeah, I mean, I came into MATE just after they had opened their first clinic as the CEO. And uh, a big part of what we're trying to do is really roll out a standardized methodology for practitioners to start. Opening new clinics, Uh, we train them, we look at the area they're in, and we are just really trying to increase the access points geographically throughout the United States, which, you know, we always hear about the financial factor, which is a huge factor. But we also don't talk enough about geography, given that 85% of clinics are concentrated in primary markets. That's leaving a pretty vast amount of the population with. Just go ahead. Yeah, it leaves a vast amount of the population without geographic access to care. Uh, and that's that's really the primary crux of our model is creating more clinics and more providers to decrease the delta between the lack of access uh, that exists, which just to quantify it a little bit, I'm a numbers person, Um you know last year in the us we did 300,000 idf cycles just to meet demand we would have needed to do 3 million cycles so oh my gosh we're not even we're not even scratching the surface of meeting current demand and as we know uh, for many many factors infertility uh, or other factors like delayed onset of parenting single parenting like people just don't have access to the care they need. And it's reflected in that huge Delta. And there are a lot of reasons um, that we can double click on within that number that I think are important.
0: Awesome. And I know um, in the information I have in the show notes, like for the most part, infertility is available for Caucasians of
1: higher income. And so that's, that's Uh, part of the Delta. Yeah, a big part of the Delta is that historically, and I, I choose to believe that none of this was intentional, right? I choose to believe that, that back in the seven late seventies, early eighties, when these programs were coming about, it was really, you know, well intended and well meaning that they concentrated the clinics where they did because it was expensive. It was a new procedure, et cetera. But what happened over the past 40 plus years is that they didn't, nothing changed within the system to create more access. So going back to your question, the the original batch of clinics was really concentrated in high net worth areas in primary cities, big cities, um, and they kind of have stayed along the same trajectories, which is a little bit different than our model. But, you know, it's not just Caucasian wealthy people, it's also heterosexual people, mm-hmm. um, you know. It, it it's a very narrow demographic, historically married, speaking.
0: Married, married, heterosexual, Caucasians with money is, and it makes sense that that's that was right. a target audience in the 70s, that makes sense.
1: But, but it hasn't yeah, changed. Yeah, and it hasn't changed. There was really not uh, enough adaptation to the increasing demand. And then back to that number that I presented, like it's huge now, you know, um, in an average mate fertility clinic, let's say, top we'll do 500 cycles uh, a year in an average mate fertility clinic. So even if we were to open 300 clinics and do 500 cycles, we're only adding 150,000 cycles to that 300,000 number. So when people wanna talk about how big is the demand and you know who are your competitors and this and that, it's like, it kind of doesn't matter. We need to increase these absolute numbers so that we can also hedge for some policy change around mandated coverage, and I think, um, you know, having mentioned that you're from Massachusetts, Massachusetts is a mandated state, and we see double-digit IVF rates in that state in particular. So that's a bit of a guiding light to say that if we can leverage increasing the volume to man to get some more mandated coverage throughout the United States from insurance companies for these things. It's going to be a game changer i think for the people who are really uh wanting and needing access to this care
0: and i told you before like when we were pre-gaming i went through infertility and i am the heterosexual caucasian the reason that i could afford it was because we were air force and so the insurance was incredible otherwise there's no chance and i could have gone the ivf route Um, I did the seven surgeries maxed out on medication almost a year. And when IVF came up, I was like, this isn't my journey. And I, I decided I did get pregnant off the cycle. The doctor was like, I don't know how this happened. I remember saying it might not be in your book. (laughs) Like Sometimes it just doesn't make sense. And fertility does not make sense. Um, So I give a huge kudos to the people that want to go the IVF route. Cause like I, that was not me. I ended up doing foster care instead, figuring I would adopt. I knew I had a high risk of miscarriage. I, I got pregnant seven times total and lost three. And I think that's why my miscarriages were a little easier emotionally, because I had this expectation of not being able to get pregnant or carry a pregnancy, but you're dealing with like once infertility is brought up, there's also the emotional factor there's the like if you can get past the money if you can get into a clinic if you qualify for that and you figure out how to pay for it there's so many more battles it, it doesn't end there right there's so much more right. so yeah um, go ahead sorry one in eight one in eight is the statistic I have that when I'm speaking one in eight couples experience infertility so please jump in
1: yeah, I mean what what you were saying about it doesn't end once you realize or once you you know have saved or once you find out that your employer has benefits that will cover it. And we should definitely talk about employer benefits. That's a huge increasing trend among um, you know different areas and worker retention, etc. Um, because regular insurance isn't covering this. Um, yeah, but you know once you get to the point where you're like, okay, uh, let's just use an example. Uh, I have a friend who's 36 years old, single LGBTQ community, decided, you know what, I know I want to have kids, I'm not partnered right now, I should go ahead and do this, right? So you get over that initial hurdle of things, and then you get there. And it's a confusing process, it's a long process, it's a disjointed process, especially if you're dealing with donor sperm or any other type of donor tissue. Most of the consents are written geared towards heterosexual married people. So there's a bit of that, you know, it, again, it's some of it's not meant to be offensive, but a lot of the language used, a lot of the verbiage and the, just the very medical forms themselves yeah. Kind of shame you for where you are in your life. You know, you're you're potentially and it's a difficult enough journey already. So like a, re- a really big part of what we try to do is we try to create an approachable environment, an open environment. We spend a lot of time with patients before they even go to the office to mm. make sure that they understand what this is going to look like. They understand how much it's going to cost they understand everything about the journey before they set foot in the clinic. Because the last thing you want to do is have somebody just going through something that's already so challenging, as you mentioned, have no idea, no compass really to understand. And our model is really built to accommodate the patient journey and also facilitate providing, you know, top, top of class service from our providers. So We have points along the journey where patients aren't having to go into the office. They're talking to people remotely. So we have a very adaptive model because we know this is a long process. A lot of people, it doesn't just take one try. I mean, we also have to look at the statistics and say, there's a lot of times that people aren't successful, right? So even they go through the process, you know, the national clinical pregnancy average from IVFs, 33%. Oh, that's not that high.
0: I was going to ask you that. I didn't realize, I had no idea what it was. When you know, like, there's a low percentage, that doesn't mean anything to me. Like, low percentage, what does that mean? 30? That's, yeah, there's a lot of education.
1: Yeah, our clinics on average currently, we're running a little above 50% on our clinical pregnancy rates. We want to get that number up even a little higher. Um, you know, and we take a really data-driven approach to what we're doing. Um, You know, it's interesting. One of the other things I'd be remiss if I didn't mention is you look at different clinics and it's really hard to get apples to apples comparison about anything, whether it's success rates, pricing, because there's a lack of transparency. So a clinic may tout that they have 80% clinical success rates, And then you start scratching under the surface and you're like, how many patients did you exclude from treatment to get to that number? Uh Right. Um, You know, the World Health Organization Mm -hmm. declared family building a fundamental human right. You know, it's we're, we're off the mark in providing meaningful access to this care, but we're also off the mark in that providers can make who they're treating so narrow so as to drive that clinical pregnancy rate up. Um, you know, pricing is another area where it's really hard to compare two clinics because you don't know what's included in their pricing. So when we say we charge X for a retrieval, that includes all the lab work. That's very uncommon in the in the IVF world to include everything in a number. Usually yeah. you see a price and that's for the medical side of it. And then the lab side of it is totally separate. And then those two numbers combined give you your total price. Mm, You know, is that transparent? I don't know. Is it the way it's always been done? Yep. Do I think it's hard for the consumer? Because as medical patients, we still have to think of them as consumers, right? Who they deserve that transparency and they deserve to understand it. So a big part of why we're structured the way we are and why we structured pricing the way we did and why we, you know, we give aggregate clinical pregnancy numbers. We don't, say, okay, if you're 25 to 32, our clinical success rate is X. This is total number. You know, we want to be really transparent with information.
0: I love that as a consumer in the middle. So like I need a foot surgery, right? So I call and I say, how much is the surgery? And the doctor's office says 3000, whatever it is, $3,000. Okay. Yeah. But then there's lab, there's radiology, there's um, anesthesia, anesthesia. There's like a bazillion hidden fees, and it's so frustrating because okay, your fee is three thousand dollars. I'm just going to double that because you get all these yeah. bills from all these departments that you didn't even know were involved, and it's it's really discouraging. Now, if you have insurance that covers 80 plus percent, it's still a surprise, but less hurtful. But when you're when it's a procedure that you're paying out of pocket, it's such a slap in the face. Right. It's it's so frustrating. And I also so that I really appreciate that you do that because it's that's that is so disheartening. The other thing you talked about is the language, the language of the contracts. And I deal with women with miscarriage all the time. And it's the same thing i'm like you need to get your medical records because it's like putting together a puzzle of what happened in the or or what happened with the uh, medical waste which is the fetal tissue under 20 weeks like we're putting together this puzzle to help you have closure in your grief and it is not intentional medical terminology insurance terminology contract terminology does not take into consideration the emotions of the person. It is very cut and dry. And so I think all you can do in that situation is the same thing that I do. It's not going to sound pretty. You're going to read it. It's going to hurt all over again. That that is not intentional. Would I like to change it? Yes. Is this the hill I'll die on? No, because the (laughs) chances of me changing all of that terminology to make it feel better when you read it, that's like, that is not a battle I'm going to win. And that's really not where the energy needs to be focused either. That's not going to help your grief necessarily. It doesn't. Yeah. Maybe a little bit, it'll feel better when you read it, but really like that is not where we can focus. And it's hard not to get tunnel vision to focus on something like that. Like, I'm sorry, this contract sucks and doesn't have inclusive language that makes you feel good. That's really not the point though, right? So it, that's a hard conversation to have though.
1: It is. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. Use the word intention. And uh, that word, I think it matters a lot, especially when we're building something new, right? Yes. What is your intention? What are you saying you're doing in the world? And how is that reflected in what you're actually doing, right? And And it matters on a bunch of different fronts, right? So if we're going out and we're saying okay, we want to be accessible to previously underserved communities, uh, whether those are BIPOC communities throughout, you know, major Mm -hmm. urban areas that have been historically neglected with not, you know, having access to clinics, or whether we're looking at just geographic access or socio, you know, economic access to, you know, we have to be intentional about that. We have to make choices that reflect that intention. And it it goes through everything. We try to really thread it through everything we do, you know, in in the way that we write our consents, in the way that we talk to patients, you know, just from the outset, you know, we don't assume people are married. We don't assume they have a partner. We don't assume anything. And I think, you know, when you are talking about, it's not the hill you're gonna die on, it's I think totally right. And it looks like an insurmountable task, but also, you know, candidly, we have tools out there now. Let's even just look at chat GPT, right? Could clinics throw all of their consents into chat GPT and say, can you please remove gendered heteronormative language from this? And it would do it like that. Mm -hmm. And then you could review it and put it back out there. And so while it's not impossible, um, it just takes intention in my opinion and right. effort and you know it's it's one of those things you can choose not to as a medical provider because you don't have to nobody's going to make you but why would you do that why would you you know not adapt to the environment that we're in where you know people want to read a consent and not have it be assumed that they're heterosexual and married right like that's weird You know, and it makes you, let's be honest, there's a big thing that we don't talk about enough, and that's shame. You know, people, Mm -hmm. even if they feel good about the choice they're making to go through this process, you know, by themselves, you don't want to be shamed along the way. And back to that intentionality, I choose to believe none of it's intentional. Yeah. Um, but there are things that we as human beings can do in our company here at Mate, or, you know, to make an example and say, like, this is what we did. You know, other people can do whatever they want, but we felt like this was important. So we did it. You
0: have the ability in your company to use, to, to change the language and have contracts that are different. I think I want to make clear, it's not the hell I'll die on because it's the hospital and insurance language. And that's, that's not changing a contract in my business. That's that is that's a massive undertaking and do it's, i want yeah, yeah to? it's
1: bureaucracy it's like fighting the federal government to get yeah you I, know so what but I, one of the things you know the the language like even in insurance policies you know uh there are lawsuits out there um that you know are, are exist there's a lesbian couple that sued atna insurance because they were excluded from coverage because the policy language as written states you have to have tried naturally for 12 months to qualify for coverage under your insurance policy. Well, they were automatically excluded from that coverage. So because of the language in that policy, and so it's one of the things, you know, Gosh, can you imagine you're like excited? You've gone through your insurance policy and you're like, wow, we're going to do this. And it's covered by our insurance only to be slapped with no, because you haven't tried naturally.
0: Maybe they did. It just didn't work. (laughs) Sorry.
1: Yeah, define try naturally. I mean- I love I that. Define try naturally. I,
0: we have been trying for three years and nothing has nothing we have done has worked.
1: Uh, I mean, like,
0: I don't have a uterus. That's a line
1: of the day. I love that.
0: We can clip that out, you know. Um, I think that for me, I want to work with a person's grief through miscarriage, fatal diagnosis, and stillbirth. and And is it important to ask and um try to get insurance companies and hospitals to change their language yes is it where i'm going to put my effort no because when you have a miscarriage and you get your insurance paperwork it says that you had an abortion for a woman who was pregnant and wanted that pregnancy and lost it against her will you don't want to see the word abortion it's very triggering no you do not Do I want to change that? Yes. Is it where I'm going to focus my energy? Is it the hill I'm going to die on? No. Am I thankful for people who are like, wait a minute. I don't like that. And I am going to go after that. Yes. I mean, I think that there should be changes. Would I get on the bandwagon with someone else? Yes, I would. But it's not something that like, I am not going to fight that battle. That's not my battle. Yeah. Um, There's, there's, I think
1: a big part of that intentionality behind what we're doing is some, some of what we're talking about, you know, is hedging, right? So by laying a foundation that's intentional, you know, do I think insurance companies are going to suddenly start mandating coverage for this um, with all inclusive language next year? No, no, I don't do I think that we can lay the groundwork to like hedge for hopeful future changes? Um, absolutely. And can you be an example
0: of changing the language within your business? Yes. Yeah. Like you can be an example in what that looks like. Yes. I want to switch gears a little bit because you're the CEO and we've talked a lot about that. And I want to end there. I want to end with the mate infertility um, because there's, you guys are doing a lot and there's a lot of, clinics now and but i want to talk about your journey in becoming the ceo can we spend some time in that because that's a pretty yeah it's a it's an amazing feat to be the ceo of this massive company that's really groundbreaking and changing people's lives even if it's a small amount of three million it's still like making a difference to that one at a time right so take me through your journey and tracy and how you got to be the ceo
1: so I was born. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's interesting and I have to be really candid. I never, being a CEO wasn't on my career path trajectory. It's not something that I aspired to. Um, and it it's been very interesting. I have to say it was one of the first things in quite some time professionally that gave me enough pause, um, It made me nervous um, because of the gravitas of what we're doing here, Um, but also the gravitas of being a CEO. I think people uh, underestimate the level of fiduciary responsibility you have across so many different areas um you know it, i firmly believe that if you're not a little bit scared to be the ceo it's it's maybe not a good fit um just because of the the level of responsibility you have but i i started out my career uh in in boston in the investment world um not okay. in the flashy front side of okay. uh, investments i graduated from college um I tested into a program at an investment bank to become a custody fund accountant. They put you through sec training. Um, and so I did fund accounting for a couple of years. And then I went into back and middle office operations, uh, with a bank that was acquired by state street. Then I went on to a boutique investment firm. Um, and I did more analytics and controller type work. So, uh, all operational, um, and then I was a consultant for about 11 years. And what I would do is I would work with small and medium businesses to help them do operational assessments to gain, uh, put in solutions that would help their business be more successful, uh, give them more insight into how things were really going, um, et cetera. But I also had a niche where I would get hired to uh, either close down companies or uh, you know shut down a portion of their business, relocate it. Various activities like that, and you know, one of there are three main reasons why I came on board with Mate. Uh, number one, LGBTQ uh, community member. We know the importance of assisted reproductive technology for our community. Um, it's something that we're aware of earlier than you know, perhaps a heterosexual person who's kind of under the assumption everything's just going to work out on that front. You know, a heter- uh, LGBTQ like people, individuals, families are aware of the need for third-party reproductive access. Also, I grew up in the rural South, so meaningful access to care is important to me. Um, You know, when we look at concentration of high-quality care, it's not equally distributed throughout the United States, and, um, you know, I had some situations when I was a kid where my dad had a brain tumor. Had to travel great distance to actually get good care for that tumor. Um, and so geographic access matters. And then the business yeah. model—it's—it's it's elegant at Mate. You know, it's—it's it's creating a true solution that's holistic, and um, can provide a lot of upside potential for our all parties involved, from the patient to the doctors that we partner with to the overall uh, fertility community in sort of standardizing some things that have historically not really been looked at in, in a meaningful way. So our model really functions in a way that wraps around the patient. It provides uh, more geographic access. It provides and enables ob to participate in this part of reproductive care that's historically been extracted from their practices, which mm. kind of doesn't make sense when you look at it. Um, and then also there's kind of a lack of standardization across the fertility industry. Yeah, sure, there's like bits and bobs, CDC, SARP, etc., cetera, ASRM that provides wonderful guidelines. Um, but the way that we look at it is how can we standardize the delivery of care over multiple parties in a meaningful way uh, with optimal outcomes. That's also more affordable and more geographically accessible to uh, patients. So, you know, it's, it's a really amazing mission. And I think many of us, including myself, um, I'll only speak for myself, reach a point in our careers and our lives where it's like, I could do what I'm good at anywhere. I might as well do it somewhere where my skill set is going to create some meaningful change in the world.
0: I I love that you started finance. I did not see that coming. <laughs> and not at all. <laughs> like I was a business It was the manager, gritty side. Like-
1: it was the gritty back office operations, you know, log- figuring out logistics of how to, you know, manage bulk order trades and stuff like that. It was it was the unsexy side of investment world. <laughs>
0: That's okay. That's okay. Um, And also because I've gone through infertility, I, and you just said you're making advancements. So my oldest daughter that I had biologically is turning 31 in April, and we're recording this at the end of January. And she has this similar fertility issues that I had and has decided to not have children and not go through infertility. The interesting sad thing is that I would have thought, okay, I went through my infertility journey 32 years ago and nothing has changed in what she did. Like her plan of attack was, I was like, I was shocked because <laughs> she it was exactly the same. So my thought going through it 32 years ago, and you know, I gave birth to four girls. Two of them probably will not have children. One of them has had kids. One of them looks like, she'll be able to have kids. I'm just based by cycles and stuff like that. But I thought, oh my gosh, I had these girls genetically they're already predisposed to having issues with their fertility genetically because it's something that runs in my family and um like I had a hysterectomy at 33. So I, I had these little girls when they were little thinking, oh no, I'm so sorry. Like before I even knew (laughs) I'm already, because you don't want a woman to have to go through that. But my hope was, nobody,
1: yeah. You would have hoped over 32 years that something would have changed. Nothing, um, nothing has changed. Zero. People, you know, one of the things that I find fascinating Fascinating. And I'm not a doctor. Um, we have wonderful doctors that work for us, and you know what we try to do is take a, a an approach that's agnostically driven by information, data, and uh, that serves you know the most people the best, right? So, just as an example, one of um, the way that we approach dosing, okay medications because that's one of the things, the price can vary wildly. Um, And we take an approach that mimicking natural biology, um, not only is there clinical data that's as closely as you can, um, there's data to suggest that higher outcomes, it's also more affordable for the patient. And it also is way, uh, nothing's easy on the body during this process, but it's easier on the body, right? Um, and then you look at the way that like different doctors do their dosing, you go to 10 different doctors, they're all doing it a different way. And some of them who started doing this in the 80s are still doing dosing the same way that they were in the 80s, which right. makes to me it doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, just agnostically, I, like I can say, gosh, a lot has changed. There's a lot more information out there like And so what we look at it is our responsibility. And that's why we don't just have one REI that works with us. We have a bunch of REIs that work with us and they're all brilliant at what they do. And they all bring a unique perspective. We take that oncological care approach where it's like, let's get all of these REs in the room. Let's get our PhD embryologists in the room and let's do the best path that makes the most sense based on the data that's out there. And you know we are trying to take a standardized approach. I think there is also, you know, historically it was a bit of a, oh well, this doctor has really good outcomes. What's he doing over there? And you know this like let's let's make it like a secret potion of how we're dosing because, but you know we we don't want to do that. We want to take a really scientific approach to it, a really data driven approach, and standardize it and measure the outcomes against those standards and make adjustments as needed, you know, take that, that, that approach to what we're doing. And, you know, you, you said a lot hasn't changed and you're totally right. I was just reading about a company yesterday, you know, when you look at the embryology lab, as an example, you know, you still have a person in that lab responsible for every little component of what goes on to make sure that everything happens. Right. Right. And you know, I, I use the analogy and this is perhaps gonna sound weird to some, but you know, again, my consulting experience is that a good solution is a good solution is a good solution. It doesn't matter what industry it's in, right? So think about a dry cleaner and this sounds like a very broad jump, but you go to the dry cleaner, you hand your articles over to a person, they code them into the system, they put them there, they go through the process, they come back out, that person hands you the thing, you hand them a ticket, they hand you the thing. Why are we so far behind in embryology labs, which is way more important than articles of clothing on being able to codify a process in a meaningful mm-hmm. way, so that it's standardized, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying, you know, of course, I think humans are really important in this process to oversee and do the things that need to be done. But like, how come there has been such a lack of innovation to, what you're, to your point, you know? Um, they got it figured out, the dry cleaner, how to do this. Uh, but, you know, we haven't figured it out here.
0: I totally get it. I, I mean, it's a great analogy. Um, I, a long time ago, I worked in dental offices and in a seminar, the, and they were saying the same thing. Like, why haven't we done this? And they called auto mechanics. And it was, it was a recording like, Hey, how much does it cost for me to get this, 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 and this? Like, why can't people call the dental office and have the same process? You can do it for your car. You can't, but a person can't call a medical office. It's the same thing in my surgery example, right? How much does it cost? Like nobody can actually give me that answer because there's seven different people I'd have to call and they'd all have to give me an accurate cost. And none of them can do
1: that. The surgeon can give me his. Well, and if you call on two different days, you might get two different answers.
0: Yeah. So I I like the dry cleaner, just like when I was in a medical field, they gave an auto mechanic example. It's the same thing. Like, why can't we do better at this stuff?
1: Well, and I think a lot of it, like, and I don't say any of this in a critical way, but it comes from sort of complacency. You know, you don't have to innovate because- you're making a ton of money doing what you're doing. And yes. like, what's the point, right? So if nothing's compelling you to move forward, um, why why would you? It's easier to stay in your green pasture with the sun shining on your back, right? right. Um, but we come to inflection points. And I think we've seen it with COVID, where it created enough friction that things started to change, right? And that's kind of the goal here is like, we want to create enough friction, because when we look at The way that it's been going and the way that the Delta year over year between those who need care and those who are receiving it, it's just getting wider. So if we don't do something that uh, can hopefully make some meaningful, put some progress in place, um, you know, nothing will ever change.
0: I agree. I'd like to end on a happy note because we could just keep talking but I, I do want to <laughs> wrap this up because I know you guys are making a difference, but I've loved all of the, I love stats. I just geek out on this stuff. Um, and you are making a difference because going from 33% to 50% is massive, massive in success rate. Um, so tell me about how many clinics there are now because it started with that one clinic and it started helping mm-hmm. with that one person and it started with um, increasing the success percentage success. I can speak today success percentage. And now where are you at with clinics and let's end on a happy note.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, um, and thank you. I think, um, you know, we have three clinics open and running. Uh, we have two more coming online, um, under contract, and then hopefully we'll get, we have a very broad pipeline of future scheduled openings. Um, what we've really been focusing on for the past year and a half is standardizing everything so that it we make it easy for the providers we partner with to get up and running smoothly, quickly, and successfully. So we, we have standardized the process almost like a franchise, if you want to think of it like that. So you know what you're getting you're getting education, you're getting project management, then you're getting all of the SOPs, you're getting all of the materials you need to successfully run this operation. And then you get our, our blended care. So we have some of the team will sit remotely, and then you have your physical office people. So, uh, you know, our goal is really to double clinic count year over year for the next several years. And that's, mm. I think, could be conservative, um, given that we are starting to have conversations with aggregators and hospital systems, which is very exciting. Um, you know, it, it provides the next level of care in their ecosystem. Continuity of care is a huge factor in women's health. Um, this facilitates that, but it also, you know, it does add revenue to these practices. Um, so, you know, it's, It's along the lines of really focusing on growth that's intentional, that's repeatable so that clinic A, B, and C are all getting the exact same thing. Um, We focus a lot on our tech stack to make sure that it's easy for everybody to use, including the patient, uh, the provider, uh, and then all of our reporting, et cetera. So, you know, we're excited. Uh, We hope to be We're on track to double our clinic count year-over-year 2022 to 2023, and then we'll hope to do the same again in 24 and 25.
0: Tracy, thank you so much for being on and sharing this information. It was really invaluable, and I appreciate you.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Jen. It was awesome chatting with you. I, uh, I really appreciate what you're doing as well.